Hello and welcome to the Sports Law Podcast with Nick DiMarco QC of Blackstone Chambers. I am delighted in this two-part episode to be joined by Michael Belloff QC, who has been described as the godfather of sports law. Michael's just published his memoirs, MJB QC, which is available in all good bookshops and online retailers. In this two-part episode, In Conversation with the Godfather, we're going to talk about Michael's contribution to sports law. What is sports law? How did Michael come to shape it? We'll talk about his journey as a barrister and then an arbitrator in sport. And in the second part in particular, we'll discuss some of the most interesting and contentious cases he's been directly involved in. Michael, I want to start with your argument that there is such a thing as sports law. Uh, It's something we talk about in chapter one of our book, Football and the Law, and you mention it in your book, MJBQC, uh, where you say, if I can just quote, sports law calls upon many discrete disciplines, contract, administrative, employment and intellectual property law, but it is my contention that we are witnessing the development of a lex sportiva, drawing on all of them, but with its own distinctive elements, particular to the sporting context. What do you mean by that? The concept of the Lex Sportiva um, was first articulated in a case in which I was the advocate um, in relation to whether or not it was legitimate for a single owner to own two clubs uh, in the same competition. And the decision of the CAS panel before whom I was then appearing as an advocate was that it was not and they relied on a whole series of principles culled from Swiss law, European community law, competition law, but they did have this statement about the existence of a Lex Sportiva, which they said was the sporting equivalent of the Lex Mercatoria, that's to say some form of underlying uh, principle that would supplement, and in some cases apparently even override, Uh, regulations that were contrary to uh, the Lex Sportiva. How far that goes um, is uncertain. Um, I'm rather a fan of it as a notion because I like the idea of something that can fill gaps and indeed put forward principles that can override um, inconsistent regulations which are thought to be unfair or discriminatory or the like. But I think that it's probably fairer to say that sports law, the law relating to sport, is better defined in terms of its so-called specificity. And if one looks across the whole range of sporting issues, even the common law, but also statute law, does adapt to the particular context. And I I wondered how one might apply this to football, because in our book, Football and the Law, we we discuss applying the criteria you have uh, developed to talk about sports law. We, we look at that in terms of football and we say, whilst you have contract law, intellectual property law, even tax law, all these things arise in football, um, you've also got some common themes like the, um, the, the FIFA RSTP, which has sort of global labour law just for football. Do you think that means we could now talk about a specific football law in the same way you talked about a a sports law? I think in exactly the same way, and indeed um, that's a very good example of where, for example, contract law in its classic form 
now has to adapt in the football context to the kind of regulations that you've just referred to. But you could find other examples. Take, for example, criminal law, things that would ordinarily constitute an assault, sometimes something more than an assault, are perfectly lawful on the football pitch. As we all know, boxing is certainly um, an assault aimed to cause grievous bodily harm, and yet the law tolerates it. These are just examples of where there is a specificity of sport, and therefore I think it is fair to talk about sports law. And indeed, as we say, there are books on sports law, which I've edited. There are journals on sports law, which also I've edited. There are degrees in sports law, which I haven't yet taken, but nonetheless, they are there. And you can't say that the subject doesn't exist if it's got all this apparatus around it. Yes. How was it that you came by sports law as, as, a, as an advocate? Well, it was pure luck, and in so much in my career, much in most people's career, actually, in the law has been pure luck. But in my case, there was a specific piece of good fortune. I happened to be, as an undergraduate at Magdalen College, Oxford, at the same time, literally my uh, year, as Adrian Metcalf, uh, who subsequently became an Olympic silver medalist uh, a year after his degree in the 4 by 400 meters relay. He was a very intelligent guy, and he formed, effectively, the first athletes' pressure group and they wanted to stage their own meeting outside the auspices of the BBC, who'd got, as it were, a contractual stranglehold on athletics meetings. And he came to me, as I say, he wanted uh, advice that would certainly be cheap and might even be cheerful. Well, it didn't actually work in that particular case. We lost the battle, but we won the war. And I remember most going along to the three A's, uh, meeting chaired by Harold Abrahams of Chariots of Fire fame with two very distinguished athletes who become very good friends of mine, David Hemery, who won the 400 metres hurdles in Mexico, and even more, Dame Mary Peters, as she now is, uh, who won the pentathlon in Munich in 1972. And when I was reading um, your chapter, My Sporting Life, in your book, uh, some of the early cases you talk about in your sports law practice had a, a particular discrimination focus. Why was that? Well, I, I think that the reality is, if I can put it this way, that sport came before sex. In other words, I got into the sex discrimination area um, as a result of already having some limited pedigree in sports law. And, for example, the, the, the most obvious case, I think the one I referred to, was trying to establish that the sporting exemption from the Sex Discrimination Act applied not only to participants but also to referees. It was an ambitious um, <laughs> argument and one that actually failed. And the other major one was, of course, the Professional Footballers Association annual dinner where there was a lady agent who said that, that was discriminatory, that it was an all-male event because it served some way as a kind of qualification, rather like Baroness Hale says about the Garrick Club. You actually develop your contacts there, and it's professionally useful. Well, we failed on that one as well. <laughs> I say, if I'd been a woman, perhaps it's showing my age, I would not have been particularly attracted by the idea of spending several hours in the company of a series of somewhat dissolute uh, uh, young men.
I think that was uh, Rachel Anderson was the agent. I, I know her well, and she still talks about that. And, of course, now those dinners are uh, both sexes go along to them and you have male and female agents, as, as one would, would expect. One of the fascinating things to me is that uh, although we are all often anti-discrimination lawyers, sport itself is often defined by discrimination, isn't it? It's, it's often endemic to sport, eligibil eligibility rules and so on. Well, I was going to say I wouldn't use the word discrimination there because it does carry with it pejorative overtones. If one used the word that it, sport has to respect certain differences, I would find that an apter description. I mean, take, for example, weight in pugilistic context, um, age... Um, gender, obviously. All these are perfectly legitimate in the sporting context. We'll come on, no doubt, to the issues in relation to gender in a moment. But I wouldn't call that discrimination. I mean, any more than you would say an entrance examination to an Oxford college is discriminatory in the sense that they are a qualifying criteria, somewhat flexible criteria nonetheless. But that's it. It's not discriminatory against those who don't satisfy them. That's just the way it has to work. But but it it is the case, isn't it, that the, the characteristics you've mentioned, but also if we think of nationality. I mean, that nationality is the basis of discrimination or, or selection, to put it another way, in international sport. Um, that's why, presumably, you have to have these specific exceptions to the legislation, because it's one of the very few areas of, of public life where discrimination is not only permitted but essential yes and, and nationality is actually a very good example um, i was watching the diamond league um, meeting from eugene where the uh, world championships are going to be held later this year um, on the iplayer and there was a marvelous um, women's uh, 3000 uh, meters uh, competition there and i noticed all these persons who were on the face of it all from kenya and they were introduced as being from Kenya, yes, but also one from Kazakhstan and one from Bahrain. And that is because of this ability to change nationality. If you're in an, a, a, a state or nation where there's a particular concentration of talent in a particular area, so you go off and you sell yourself to the highest bidder. And I know, for example, that the, uh, the World Athletics are now actually setting up a kind of working party to try to work out what is an acceptable time which someone can spend moving from state A to state B and to be qualified to run, jump, throw for state B. It's a very vexed area, and I have a certain... I think dislike's not the right word, as perhaps a, a minor aversion to the notion that it should be too easy for people to switch, uh, national, to have switch sporting nationalities. But I think it's a very complicated area. There's a lot to be said. Well, one remembers, I think, from my childhood, Zola Budd and yes. those sorts of cases. Well, indeed. I remember Zola Budd because I was partly involved in advising the, I think, the Southern AAs in those days about how we could ensure that she was able to run for uh, Britain. Uh, of course, um, in the end, we know what happened. <laughs> she fell over, she tripped the favourite, and so on and so forth. Yes. You mentioned um, the current, one of the current big controversies, and you describe it in your book, the, the Casta Semenya case. 
and your involvement in drafting the IAAF regulations reflecting the decision in that case, which I think you say is, is currently the, the subject of a, a, of a human rights review. Um, you say that, in your view, biology should trump identity. What do you mean by that, and why do you say it? Well, I would perhaps put it in a different way that uh, Seb Coe has recently put it. It's a question of fairness trumping the possibility of inclusivity. And I think because it's only fair... I mean, I was most forcibly brought up uh, with the significance of this issue when I was at the Rio Olympics in 2016, and I watched the 800 metres, which, of course, was Castor Semenya's <coughs> main speciality. In fact, the first three um, all-medal winners... Um, had what you now described somewhat euphemistically of differences of sexual development. But it was so clear just from that fragment that there was an obvious advantage over women who didn't have <laughs> ordinary sexual development, I could put it that way, that uh, really there have to be rules. It's very, of course, difficult to know precisely where. I mean, for example, if they've got an, um, testosterone levels that are way above average for a female athlete, and those are the ones that contribute to the successes that they would have against women without that testosterone level, the question is, where do you draw the line? I mean, at the moment, it sounds somewhat arbitrary to persons who aren't following track and field. Why is it only for the 800 metres and 1,500 metres and not for events um, of lesser distance or greater distance? Well, the, the true answer is that the advantages are there, probably, in all distances. It's just that um, the evidence isn't so strong in relation to those other distances, and actually the advantage is probably less in relation to those other distances. I'm not a physiologist or anything, so I can't talk as an expert on that. But what you can't do, I think, is to ignore the effect of biology. I mean, we all saw that extraordinary photograph um, of the swimming competition in, in America, where there was this, uh, the, the, the first two, I think, well, the lady who won, uh, she was a trans gender here. I mean, this is now we've gone to a quite different area. When I was involved in these matters, they were all to do with elevated testosterone levels of people who were f f women and defined themselves as women and were entitled to define themselves as women. They just had this infusion, if I can put it this way, of masculine characteristics. Now we've got people who are biologically men, but who say that they identify as women should be treated as women. I think it's even more obvious why one has to respect biology in that area, uh, and even more damaging to female sport overall, if they're always going to be find themselves beaten by persons who are biologically male but identify themselves as women. I mean, sport is only a very limited area, and it's only one of the very limited areas in which this kind of conflict arises. In all other ways, let me make it entirely clear, I have nothing but respect uh, to 
persons who are trans one way or the other, uh, who want their identity recognized and be called by the names that they chose to be called by, etc., etc. But in this particular area, we've been talking about sport. I'm afraid fairness has to, fairness to the wider community of women has to trump the interests of those who identify as women but are biologically male. Well, it's, it's a fascinating topic in itself. One, I'm, I'm sure we should have a, a, a podcast just on in the future and a debate. And so we've, we've touched upon the significance of discrimination and discrimination law in sports law. Another obvious area is the law of um, what we call in England anyway, restraint of trade and how that's been important in, in shaping the law, including in some of the, the cases you were involved in. Can you tell us about any of those? Well, I mean, the, the major cases were ones in which I was not, in fact, um, involved, um, although, <laughs> by fortuity, uh, when Kerry Packer used, used Bob Alexander, Lord Alexander, as his counsel, and Lord Alexander went off to the National Westminster Bank to chair it, um, Kerry Packer, I'm afraid, had to deal with what he no doubt regarded as a kind of runner-up when I was representing uh, one of his team of polo players who had been banned from for some uh, alleged offence against the rules of polo, participating in the equivalent of the cup final. But anyhow, I mean, that was not itself a restraint of trade case. The ones that I myself have been involved in was, I mean, think most obviously was the George Best one when I was still junior counsel. And George Best was seeking to then playing for Fulham, not particularly well, wanted to play for a team called the Tampa Bay Rowdies in Florida, where he did go, and successfully we managed to persuade, I think it was Mr Justice McGarry, that the FIFA, the FA rules that appeared to disentitle him to make that move at the time he wanted to make it were in fact in some way ultra-varies. Um, as I say, <laughs> he didn't do very well. I mean, he was already a lass on a very much a downward slope there. But the other ones, I mean, as a cast arbitrator, I've been involved in several of the football cases, and you've already referred to the relevant regulations as to what is or is not just cause, and in particular, what are the, what, how do you measure the compensation for someone who has breached his contract without just cause, according to the regulations. And, and that's a, a subject that actually, I think there are no, as it were, clear principles. There are, that's actually an area where there are a variety of approaches in different CAS panels, but those are the areas where I think it's, there's a, such, such, some utility to think about the underlying principle. There it is, you see, I mean, you mentioned restraint of trade. I mean, most people are subject, obviously, to sort of contractual obligations. Are able to leave with giving, you know, relevant periods of notice and the like. In football, they've drafted regulations because they think the stability of having a team during a particular season is very important. That's why the rules are drafted, and they are. It's not as easy to get out of contract as one wished to be. And not only that, but it's one of the only areas of industry or economy that I can think of where the individual employee here the football player is not only as you say sometimes tied to their contract by regulatory rules the transfer market and so on but they are themselves or to be more accurate their registration rights are traded as a commodity on the market 
It's a very unusual and specific thing, isn't it? Well, it's a very unusual, actually, to have players treated as commodities. I mean, it, it, I mean it's not slavery, but I mean, these sensitivities, one can see what other persons are actually or a soul. I mean, as you say, it, it, that's another example, I think, of the specificity of sport. Yes. And, and you've touched, I think, already on, on the answer to the next question I was going to ask you, which is other areas of law that you think are important to sports law. You obviously touched on employment law or labour law there. What, what other areas are key to sports law in your view? Well, I suppose uh, one of the current significance, revived current significance um, in relation to the final um, the, um, the champions coming in, in Paris, um, the whole question of discipline on and off the field in football is particularly um, subject to what I would call loosely and perhaps rather understating misbehaviour. I mean, we not only have recently examples of referees being um, spat at and harassed and so on and so forth, we've had examples of fans as, that has happened in Paris the week before last, reviving all the memories of the tragedies and catastrophes of Hillsborough related. And the whole notion of, of, of how you control sport in that sense going further than simply the ordinary criminal law, I'm afraid is, a, is a, a something of increasing salience. And we even, Gary Southgate has just said, for example, it's affected the way in which he's going to choose penalty takers in the future, given the amount of racist abuse that was levied at those three persons of a minority ethnic origin, if we use that phrase, uh, after they missed the penalties in the final of the European um, Cup. And you, you remind me talking about some of this that on, on a related at least point, you and I did a case that uh, ended in the Court of Appeal for uh, um, a, a football club uh, about um, paying who, who pays the police for footballing um, for Ipswich Town. And um, that case, I suppose, ostensibly was a public law case maybe. I'm not quite sure what one would describe it as. But again, it was very specific, wasn't it, it to was the very football specific. situation? It was specific, although there were precedents, I remember, in mm. relation to um, pop festivals and so on. But that's actually a very interesting example of a case where I think by now we probably do know what the way to apply it. But this was, I think, the third or even fourth in a sequence of cases in which the judges actually were in disagreement. Mm -hmm. Um, and Parliament, of course, doesn't want to step in there mm. for obvious reasons. You offend one side or the other. Exactly. Reading about your early life, earlier life, as a barrister uh, in Chapter 4 of your book, which I think is called Utter Barrister, um, which, which perhaps describes it, you had quite what we might call a knockabout practice, didn't you, in, as a junior? Uh, was that something that you think helped you later on as a sports lawyer or not? Yes, I mean, utter barrister is in fact um, a somewhat um, old-fashioned term of art for someone who is not a silk. I think it's based on where actually you sit in court. It's not like being you're an utter, not in that sense. I mean, I, the answer is 
Uh, yes, I mean, I think it helped me generally as an advocate in all kinds of areas. But if you ask specifically in sport, I think the answer I would give is this, that it did in fact educate you in the fact that there are a range of adjudicative bodies. And therefore, if, for example, you have only been as a junior um, um, in a Supreme Court case with a, a leader in front of you or the Privy Council or in a big commercial arbitration, um, you don't perhaps have the feel for the different forms of adjudicative body there are. And in particular, I'm thinking of how do you address a sporting tribunal, which is an internal one. I mean, not like the Court of Arbitration for Sport or even Sport Dispute Resolution, which after all are bodies that are peopled by lawyers and indeed specialist lawyers, but bodies that are actually just people who, in the sporting field, are officials in the game. You have to be very careful, for example, not to be seeming to be patronising them, and very careful to appreciate that they're not trained lawyers and therefore should not be addressed in the way you'd be addressing the Supreme Court. And that, I think, what you call the knockabout practice, maybe I called it the knockabout practice as well, um, does give you a range of experience that I think is very important. You, you remind me, I was once at the Cheltenham Gold Cup and um, I had to be called in for a steward's inquiry on behalf of a, a jockey. And I had my little blue notebook with me and went to sit down in front of them. And uh, the, the steward said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm sitting down. They said, you stand up. And <laughs> things like that, you, you, you're not going to learn, as you say, being a commercial junior sitting no. behind someone in the no. high court every day. No, and it's usually very wise if one's appearing in front of a tribunal where one hasn't experienced before to ask someone who, who knows about it, usually the person who sort of opened the door and said, they're ready to hear you now. Another important milestone that you identify as um, putting you down as what you've been described as, as the godfather of sports law, is your book writing. Uh, and the book you wrote, one of the first books on sports law, though you do give tribute to Edward Grayson, the barrister who I think did write the, the very first book on sports law in, in 1978. Um, how important is book writing in terms of becoming a leading practitioner in a developing area of law? Well, I think it, 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 in my case, actually, it went the other way round. It was because by then I was so-called a leading practitioner that um, I was asked to do a book on sports law. But your question is absolutely right. I mean, one of the ways of developing a new practice as an advocate is to write a book and certainly I wrote the first commentary on the Sex Discrimination Act deliberately with a view to obtaining a practice in that area and it served me very well so I mean you could do it as it were either way around. Uh, yes yeah, so considering what you say about that and about your early practice I note in in your book you say basically that you never really turned down a brief and you worked through the summer vacations would it be unfair to have described you or describe you as a workaholic? Well, I, I think my wife would certainly describe me in that way. It would be not unfair to describe me as a workaholic. And even though now um, I have effectively retired from most of the areas of practice, certainly as an advocate, 
and even, as I were, limiting my role as an arbitrator, I still get um, quite involved in any case that I am actually uh, instructed in, or rather nominated in now as an arbitrator. Do you think that to become a successful leading lawyer in an area like sports law, uh, you need to be almost obsessive and driven, as you appear to have been? I don't think so. I mean, I, I, you know, you can achieve, I'm sure, a perfectly acceptable work-life balance and still become prominent in the particular area of law in which you uh, want to specialise. What you have, of course, to have is the quality of those instructions that you accept. You have to <laughs> devote yourself properly too. It's, it's no good, as it were, skimping on it and flying by the seat of your pants or anything of that kind. But that doesn't mean, of course, that you have to accept every single piece of work that you're offered. I happen to be lucky, certainly by the time I became uh, came into Silk, that the work that I was offered tended to be virtually irresistible. I would find it very difficult to turn it down. I think, oh gosh, I should have done that too. Talking about preparation, um, one of the most important aspects of your practice is your advocacy. Um, and you've certainly been described as one of the greatest living advocates. When I've had the pleasure of being led by you or seeing you in court, I can attest to that. But what it looks like to perhaps the uh, unknowing spectator is that uh, your advocacy is effortless and spontaneous, whereas in fact, I hope you don't mind me saying, but having worked with you as a junior, I can see just how much preparation you put into it. I remember in one case we did together, drafting a script and redrafting it and redrafting it and redrafting it, even if you may well go off script when you're in court. Why do you do that? Well, I never have used, um, other than in courts um, in the European Court of Human Rights and the Court of Justice, I've never actually used a script and read from it. And the only reason that I've done it in those four is usually because A1 is time-limited and therefore it's important not to have too much to say, and B, because it's going to be interpreted and therefore it's very important to be on good terms with the interpreter and give them a script in advance and discuss with them any problems they might have with it. Otherwise... However marvellous what you're saying is, um, it's not actually going to get through to the judges at all. Um, but, uh, as you say, at the end of the day, and I'm not saying anything particularly about myself, I mean, I'm talking about other advocates who've been described in, in glowing terms. I mean, there is some X factor that it's very difficult to identify. I mean, if, if you could replicate it in everyone, well, everyone would have it. And I think there's a certain element, I don't know, of, of in, inborn fluency, something like that, so that it's not so much the merits of your argument, but the way in which you're presenting it that seems to be attractive to the tribunal in front of whom you're appearing. But I, I want to challenge that a little bit because, I, 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 of course, I accept a lot of that. But I, I think what I was talking about with your, your script writing was not a script that one reads out, but that one prepares very thoroughly for what one's going to say so that when one says it, you don't need the notes, you don't need the script, you say it. And any question you're asked by the judge, 
you've already thought of it and you know the answer. That's not God-given. That's something you've worked really hard on to be able to do it, but you make it look like a gift. It's very kind of you, but, you know, of course you're quite right. I mean, you have to uh, prepare. Um, I mean, fortunately, in one sense, uh, the move now to written advocacy to complement or support oral advocacy, of course, is one of the most obvious developments during my professional career. And that does mean that you have, in fact, to have a coherent argument that could be read before. And therefore, if you've got a coherent argument, it will no doubt be as thorough as it can be, so that your oral argument, if, as you say, questions are asked, you should already have thought of it. It doesn't, of course, always happen. If you're appearing in front of the Supreme Court of the House of Lords, of course they're thinking of things that you haven't thought of before, but you must do your best to try to anticipate them. And I hope I'm not being offensive when I say, if you've got an excellent junior, it makes it so much easier. And returning to some of the sports law cases you've been involved in, either as advocate or arbitrator, which one was the most important in terms of developing the area of law, in your view? That's a quite an interesting question. Um, I think that myself, the certainly as an arbitrator, I suppose the cases that are of most general interest in which I have been involved um, are the doping cases and the corruption cases. And I think... If I've ever said anything memorable as an uh, an arbitrator, several of my dicta, certainly in the corruption cases, recur again and again in other decisions that came subsequently. And of all the cases you've done, all the sports law cases you've done, what was the most difficult or horrible one and why? Well, one thing I would say is certainly sitting as an arbitrator. Well, and sitting in my role actually as the first chair of the what's now World Athletics Disciplinary Tribunal, um, I had in front of me a series of Olympic and world champions, all of whom I had seen and hugely admired while I was watching them, and all of whom, alas, uh, turned out to have um, some form of pedigree in doping. Now, I want to make it entirely clear that I was not dealing with cases immediately after their triumph, and therefore the fact that they were subsequently found by me to be guilty of doping infractions doesn't necessarily mean that they were guilty of those infractions at the time they won their medals. It may have been, they may not, but certainly there's no evidence to that effect. But it does cast a retrospective shadow over these events. And in one way, the most, the saddest case I did as an arbitrator, and now I wasn't a sole arbitrator, it was a court of arbitration for sport, was of Michelle Smith, or De Bruyne in her married name, who was that marvellous red-headed Irish woman who won three gold medals and one bronze at Atlanta in 1996. And, of course, it was a sensation. She defeated the American favourite and so on. I mean, coming from Ireland, a small nation, she became an heroine. And a few years later, um, she was found to have, in fact, contaminated a sample that she gave with Irish whiskey. Now, as I say, it was a very sad case because we found the case was clearly made out. Again, it doesn't prove she was doing it when she won her gold medals, but again, her reputation as a result of that was tarnished. I was sad because what was uh, not 
particularly a heroine for me, but a national heroine, then might have had feet of clay. There is a story of redemption here. She's now become a practicing lawyer, and as I understand it, a very good one. Excellent. And which was the case you most enjoyed, got the most personal satisfaction well, out of? There's absolutely no question about that. Uh, and this is when I was an advocate for Christina Hurubu, who um, won the gold medal in the Beijing Olympics, our only gold medal, and the track and field in the 400 metres, whom I had volunteered, for reasons I needn't go into, it's in the book, uh, to represent for nothing, and uh, to sit in the bird's nest stadium and to watch an athlete win our only gold medal when she would not have been there had I not been able to successfully challenge a ban that she'd previously been under-imposed by the British Olympic Association was memorable. Actually, Christine is another example. She's now becoming a lawyer as well. Yeah, and she was at your recent book launch party. Yeah. I thought you would say that. Re reading the chapter in your book, it clearly had a, a, a big effect on you, that case. Um, well, actually, it had a big effect on her Absolutely, as well. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> She's become a friend too, yeah. Thank you for listening to part one of Conversation with the Godfather. In part two, we'll be focusing on some of the more interesting and contentious cases Michael has been involved in. So make sure you subscribe to the Sports Law podcast from Blackstone Chambers with me, Nick DeMarco.